Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja, California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel, a podcast about all things rock art. Send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast, Episode 5 with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Today we talk about the fantastic Little Petroglyph Canyon rock art at China Lake Naval Weapons Center in the eastern Mojave of California. All right, welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast with myself, Chris Webster, and Dr. Alan Garfinkel. So I'm recording outside, sitting at Cannery Row in beautiful Monterey, California. Uh, so you might see some extra sounds on my side, but it's a, it's a beautiful day, and we're going to talk about some rock art. So Alan and I had a, had a guest today, but that did not pan out for this time around, so we're going to have him on later. But instead, we're going to have a little featurette on China Lake and the uh, Little Petroglyph Canyon. So, Alan, why don't you tell us all about Little Petroglyph Canyon? Chris Webster, it's great to be on here. So I've been working out in the uh, China Lake Coso Range for nigh on, I don't know, over 40 years. I began work out there for my master's thesis out at Fossil Falls and Little Lake, which is on the edge of the Coso Range. And then I've been uh, conducting tours and field trips and doing trainings and educational seminars throughout the uh, area of the Coso Range. And what we have in, in the southwestern corner of the Great Basin, in what I like to call Eastern California, you're looking at a place, a very small place, only about 100 square miles, I would say, at most, that's principally volcanic. It's called Coso Range. Coso means steam. There is a um, mountain about a million years old that's called Volcano Peak. There's a Sugarloaf Mountain that has a literally a, a mountain 
of volcanic glass of obsidian. Then we've got a, a smaller hill, a cinder cone that's red. That's the youngest piece of volcanism there. Uh, and that one is only about 10,000 years. And within this Coso Range area, we have the Coso Hot Springs, which is a geothermal situation. It's a 200 degree Fahrenheit pond of boiling water. <laughs> and, 200 uh, degrees. 200 degrees Fahrenheit boiling water pond and associated fumaroles steam jetting out of the ground. Wow. It's hell on earth. <laughs> it really it really is. Did the people who live there, um, I mean, do they go in those hot, that seems a little too hot to even get in, or do they use it for like a sauna type situation? Well, they understood that that was uh, too hot for, that would burn up people and animals, <laughs> but they did use yeah. it as a, a place of uh, religious importance, sacred importance, because of the healing mud. There's mud there that's red, white, yellow, black. And that mud was used as a means of a curative. And also, hmm. I think there was some way that they were able to do sweats there. I know there is today. But that sweating or that using the, the steam of that place is also said to have curative properties and this Coso Hot Springs was known throughout the immediate vicinity as really the best place to go if you were sick and needed some means of getting well. That That's interesting. I've got a, a membership we haven't used much because of the virus, but at uh, David Wally's Hot Springs down near Carson City, Nevada. And yes. They've got this whole developed thing and they've got a steam room that does use the steam from the hot springs. In fact, before it was so developed as it is now, Mark Twain famously went there and <laughs> did some did some healing in the uh, in the hot springs there. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. So I think this uh, hot springs would be therapeutic and it also is well known. It has uh, sacred oral traditions surrounding it and native people in the immediate vicinity were the ones historically that used it. Now, mm-hmm. in, this, in this area, in this uh, area that is um, the easternmost part of Kern County, it's uh, the southernmost area of Inyo and sort of the northernmost part of San Bernardino County, is a million-acre uh, naval weapons center, a uh, military facility, one of the most yep. secret places on Earth where they test... Uh, missiles and drones and and develop technology to uh, defend our country and uh, honestly kill our enemies. Yeah. And um, they've done a a remarkable job at that. And it is one of the most secure and secret places probably in the United States. No one gets in and no one goes out unless they know about (laughs) it. It's, It's fenced and it's monitored. So there is only uh, one place that's publicly available to uh, visit, and there are guided tours done by the base with uh, either the California Rock Art Foundation or the Matarango Museum. They're suspended right now, but I anticipate that sometime, either by the end of this year, the beginning of next, they'll start up again. Mm -hmm. There's a a mile-long canyon. It's known as Little Petroglyph Canyon. It was known by the politically incorrect 
uh, nomenclature of renegade canyon <laughs> before. <laughs> and uh, that canyon is interesting. I've come to understand a lot more about it. But within that canyon, I would say there's no less than, let's say, 15, 20,000 individual instances of rock art. And what I'm saying there is that within this 100 square miles, there's probably no less than 100,000 individual instances of COSO rock art. And this, uh, the scholars, rock art specialists, consider that uh, this particular type of rock art is the, and this location has the highest density of rock art, the greatest concentration of rock drawings in the entire Western Hemisphere. So that's rather wow. remarkable. Um, it's an area that is um, beautiful, protected, pristine in the sense that even though the military uses it, they use a fraction of it. And so as you go into the canyon, you will see the natural wildlife, including animals such as burrows, horses, deer, other animals along those lines. And the vegetation, even though you're in a desert environment, is rather uh, brilliant and beautiful. Yeah, it, it is. And I remember five years ago, uh, actually coming up to almost exactly five years ago this summertime, when I was working down there on a project with you, you organized one of those tours for our crew and uh, and a few others. And we got to go up there and it was just, it was, it was amazing. And the thing I like about it is like, the only other thing I can equate it to is the Petroglyph National Monument in New Mexico, outside Albuquerque. And we went there about 10 years ago and it was just an amazing array of rock art, but it was like in a big arc and you could kind of see it all at once as you, you know, just scanned the horizon. But, but a little Petroglyph Canyon, like you walk into this canyon, you're like, Ooh, rock art. Ooh, rock art. It's like around every corner and, and every <laughs> rock and every boulder, there's something else to see. And then you're like, you're like, man, I want to get inside this little thing and see what's behind there. Sure enough, there's a, there's something in some inaccessible place that, you know, maybe the boulder fell over in the last couple thousand years, or they actually squeezed up in there and, and carved something into the rock. But it's just amazing the amount of stuff that's there. What's interesting about Little Petroglyph Canyon that I really didn't understand until relatively mm -hmm. recently is its unique nature. It's unique in the sense that it daylights on the surface of the valley floor, but you descend into almost an underworld context in that yeah. the rock guard itself is in a drainage going deeper and deeper and deeper as it uh, continues to wind its way in this mile long uh, trail or arroyo system where you're inside right. of a, a volcanic flow. The, the oldest part of the canyon is the uppermost part. When you descend the canyon, you can go right or left. And if you go right, you'll see imagery that is probably in the realm of early Holocene or late Pleistocene, meaning it's probably 10,000 years or more old, uh, especially the very deeply carved images that occur in a very concentrated small area. Let's, let's stop right there real quick, because how do, I mean, dating rock art is notoriously difficult. So how do Correct. we know that the upper stuff is older? What is the, what are the clues there? Well, you know, I've been on the trail of dating rock art for, again, you know, the 40 years in the wilderness being the wandering Jew that I am. <laughs> and so there's many ways to date rock art and all of them are difficult and controversial. But <laughs> if, if you use different techniques 
and you begin to cross-correlate those techniques and you begin to find ways to test your working hypotheses about the ages of various imagery, you can sort of get a fix in a general way by brackets of time. So Mm -hmm. let me explain. One way to date rock art is based on its superimposition. What happens is that when you're working with basalt and you're working with lava flows, the way they craft rock art is to peck through the desert varnish and reveal the heart rock. Often the native people will superimpose or place images over older images and you have this layered almost or as horizontal stratigraphy on the rocks. Well, the Koso people were nice enough to change their style of and subject matter of doing rock art production over the course of their last 10, 11, 12, 13,000 years. And so we can see the change. We can see the changes stylistically, stylistically and based on subject matter. So that has to do with the superimposition and also the amount of re varnishing. The oldest of the rock art is completely re varnished. So when I say revarnished, it's as dark as the original varnish that occurs on the rock. And so we can see those images. Also, we've been able to use what's called an experimental dating technique, direct dating technique, to relatively date the images. We do that through X-ray fluorescence. It's a portable machine that can quantitatively measure the trace elements within the varnish. Hmm. And I've done this with two different specialists on Koso rock art over the course of the last many decades. And the ages that they come up with from that particular method are rather consistent and rather predictable and are in alignment with my archaeological speculations based on other means. So what you do is you, you get a reading from the unvarnished or unpecked rock art, and you get the relative quantity of manganese. And then you do the same thing within the interstices, within the little tiny way they've pecked it out. And so you can see how long that particular image has been exposed to the environment. You also have to calibrate it. And we know calibration-wise by looking at the original lava flows and when the climate changed, when the desert varnish began about 10,000 years ago. Am I getting too technical? No, no, that's good. That's something I was going to mention. So there's another technique too that I hear people talk about all the time, especially people in CRM that probably have a, a cursory interest in all this stuff because they have to know a little bit about everything. So, But I hear a lot about relative dating where, where people will find uh, projectile points and other artifacts and things that we can more accurately date, or at least we think we can, and then thereby, if it's found near or around this rock art, kind of try to date the rock art. But I, I always exactly. no, no, never exactly. had too much. So, yeah, but I never so had too much faith in that because people visit these sites all the time. That's correct. You know? Now, the way we use those, Chris is we do what you're suggesting, but we, what we, we, we raise it up a notch, you know, bam, mm-hmm. just like the, the uh, famous uh, cook who did that. Um, <laughs> Emerald. We just, Emerald, we, Emerald Lagasse, we just, you know, we, we, this is dating on steroids. So what we do is okay. we look at, we look at the 
associations of a particular rock art site. What chronological diagnostics are there? Are there projectile points from a certain period of time that we know what they date to and they're there at the site? Then have we found a location that is time diagnostic and time restrictive? So in other words, is most or almost all of the the diagnostics dating to a particular period of time. So right. if it's if it's a single component site and it's got rock art, you're you're sort of raising it up a notch hmm. and then trying to say that we have uh, cultural activity at the same time as the production of the site. Now we do that right. with chronological diagnostics. We also do that with source specific, temperature adjusted, obsidian hydration dating. <laughs> So, you know, what's interesting about the single chronological like diagnostics, yeah, uh, single event sites is hopefully they didn't have any clean up the street litter programs. That's right. <laughs> That's time. right. That's right. And, and, and swept it all there right next to it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, or picked up the old stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, right. So there's so there's. The other one that was a bit subjective is the revar- is the revarnishing because the revarnishing is very subjective, and I think you kind of alluded to this based on uh, environmental conditions. So if it's been revarnished, correct. yeah, we need to understand. Well, in that amount of time, like you know, ten thousand years ago versus five thousand years ago versus two thousand years ago, revarnishing can happen at different rates based on environmental factors. Yes, and and fortunately, the uh, scientists that I work with, two different sets of scientists, have pioneered this experimental way of dating rock art, using it all over the world and using it in the Middle East and in areas where the subject matter of the rock art tells you how old it is. It's got writing. It's got, it's Mm -hmm. got domesticated animals on it. It's got certain kinds of subjects that we know specifically what their age is, and so they can cross-correlate the readings and identify what the basic way is, how the desert varnish develops, and what quantitatively we can measure the images. The other thing we do is do the subject matter. So fortunately, the nice COSO people depicted in a representational and realistic fashion bows and arrows that Mm. they use to hunt animals. We know when the bow and arrow was introduced. We know that very specifically because of radiocarbon dates on uh, arrow points that are connected to four shafts that we find in dry caves. And so we know Mm -hmm. that 2,000 years ago, the bow and arrow was introduced into the southwest corner of the Great Basin. Right. And so if we have bows and arrows depicted, it's about 2,000 years old or younger. We also know that when, it, when there's otlottles, the throwing stick that, that they use to propel darts, that those are older than 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's very, very helpful in understanding from a broad standpoint what the chronological frames are of the rock art. Now, what else is right. helpful is it really appears that there's different periods of time with different subject matter. And I've only, we've only now really begun to pierce the veil and understand that. At a very ancient level, the oldest layers of rock art that exist from, let's say, 8,000 to maybe 12,000 years ago are predominantly abstract. In other words, they're, 
we see curvilinear meanders, we see suns, we see uh, lattice work, we see many different kinds of of images, but they're principally the kinds of things that are non-representational and not naturalistic. We can't tell what they are. They appear to us to be abstract. Mm -hmm. During that very early time, there appears to have been a religious expression that occurred where we find, uh, I, I call them decorated animal human figures. These are large and prominently placed images of, I call them shamanistic ancestor deities. That's a good name for them. They're, <laughs> they're, they're figures that are obviously not human. They have avian feet and avian legs. They're, confla right. they're conflated or with serpents, snakes. They hold magic wands. They often have concentric circle heads. Their bodies are decorated with designs. And hmm. they also have uh, plumed headdresses, uh, often bird plumes. And wow. of, often they are the uh, headpieces of quail. They're quail plumes. And so that gets us off into a whole other world. On top of that, the, the latest discovery that is being made, both by, by myself and a, and a colleague who's finishing up her PhD dissertation now, is that uh, this early class of decorated animal humans, they're sometimes called patterned bodied anthropomorphs, a lot of, mm -hmm. of psychobabble, psycho that um, <laughs> they're, they're running about 80% females. Meaning when you can wow. gender, when you can classify them and when you can see uh, certain things about them, attributes that will tell you what particular gender they are, they are in fact females. And it looks to me that what they're, what they're communicating is a passion or a sense of reproductive fertility, renewal, um, increase rights. In other words, these are, these are beings that are sort of in charge of the cosmic universe and they are being respected or prayed to or venerated so that the Koso right. world can continue and that the rain comes, that the animals and plants are sufficient for them to survive mm -hmm. and that the humans can have children and that the Koso people can have a sustainable lively and pleasant life in the Coso range of Eastern California. <laughs> okay. And with that, we are going to take our first break. When we come back, I want to dive into superposition. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on Pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P A L E O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. All right, welcome back to episode five of the Rock Art Podcast. And I wanted to, as I mentioned at the end of the last segment, dive back into superposition real quick because you mentioned that we, we did kind of gloss over it a little bit, but really it's the idea of later 
rock artists, if you will, um, later native peoples literally drawing or, or etching or pecking, whatever method they were using, rock art over the top of other rock art. That and is correct. That's interesting. That's interesting to me. And I'm glad we didn't really talk about this in the beginning because you talked about all these different styles of rock art uh, in the last half of the first segment. That's correct. And these things were really important to people. Do we have any idea why they, with so many rock faces available, why would they choose to, to you know, what are, the, what are the theories behind why they would choose to actually just carve something right over the top of something else? It doesn't make any sense to me. So, what so, are the, so yeah. I, w- I wasn't there when they were carving. So I don't, so I don't know. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> but, but there has been a lot of theories or speculation about this. And we do know that this phenomenon goes on even to this very day. So okay. there's, there's two ways to explain this. There's a conventional way that some archaeologists have done. And in some instances, when a new culture replaces an earlier culture, they may deface or somehow superimpose their new images on the older rock art. So one right. could say one could say that was going on. But the other thing that goes on, and we know this for a fact, is that some of the existing images are repecked later on to either refresh, mm-hmm. either refresh the magic and the power of that rock art, or to bring out that magic and power currently for the individuals that are there uh, occupying the area today and using that kind of kind of effort to re-energize the cosmic energy of the place so and when you re- when you replace or embellish or add another level perhaps to the native mind that was not a conflict that was not a way of disregarding. It was a way of venerating and layering and adding to the power and majesty and importance of the spot. Can I give right. you a? Can I give you a, an answer to a sort of an, an analogous thing? Um, <laughs> yes. When they when they've interviewed Native people, Native Americans, uh, I've heard this several times ethnographically when anthropologists asked Native Americans, they said, you know. You uh, converted to Catholicism or Christianity, and yet you seem to be very active in also celebrating or venerating and participating in religious ceremonies for your older, ancient, indigenous Native American religion. Now, those, hmm. those two sets of religions seem to be rather contradictory. You know, one, one calls those, those people idols and uh, et cetera. Well, the native person answers that and says, I don't see any difference. It's not, there's no, no backwards or forwards or ups and down. It says, they have gods in the new religion. We have gods. The more gods, the better. <laughs> and, right, right. And, and Native American minds, cognitive understanding of the universe is not either or, it's both and. Now, what I mean by that is there's no problem in having the oppositional forces of the universe playing against one another and that intermediation at the same time continuing as part and parcel of this cosmic drama. So it's, mm-hmm. there, can, there can be a sun, which is light and day, 
But for light and day and sun and growth, you have to have darkness and you have to have an underworld and you have to have death and you have to have cold. It can't always be sunny. It also has to be dark. It can't always be dry. It has to be wet. And so by having those obvious antithetical processes going simultaneously, I think the indigenous mind, the Native American mind, is one that integrates all of these opposing forces and is fine with it. <laughs> and, and, and that's a non-Cartesian, a non-Western industrial conceptualization of the world. Mm-hmm. For instance, you know, when someone asks us a question and wants us to explain the answer, they want one answer. <laughs> they want one, they want the, the answer. How do you explain right. this, Alan? Well, with the from a Native American or an indigenous or even an anthropological way, we can explain it a myriad of ways, and all of those ways integrate into a holistic understanding. Well, not only that, but we're talking about thousands of years of cultural change, too. I mean, even the even the United States in, in pick any state or region was different 50 years ago versus 100 years ago, and we're trying to place reasons for doing things on people that existed for 10,000 years and joined, you know, different different groups joined together, then split off and joined together and split off. And the cultural change and shift that happened over that time, you know, they could have thought about, uh, you know, particular rock art site differently a yes. thousand years later or maybe lost it for a thousand years and then rediscovered it and said, what the heck is this? And and then, you know, uh, took a look at it again. So and I'm wondering. Yeah, please. Yeah. I'm wondering, do you know if there's any examples, and you could probably only tell this through something like revarnishing, but where a a later group possibly uh, augmented an existing uh, an existing design, you yes. know, like added to it, yes. or or is it just yeah? No, okay, that, absolutely. So nice. one of the, one of the ways we can see rock art develop and change and date it, and the mm-hmm. and the Coso case is rather special in this particular regard. The latest period of time that the archaeologists have reconstructed in Koso land is a period that dates from, let's call it AD 1000, AD 1300 to historic times, the last period of time. Well, that period of time was one that the indigenous people, the native people in my mind and many archaeologists' mind, left. Hmm. They had a culture that floresced and then for a number of different reasons we believe either went through a collapse or ceased to be viable or was replaced or integrated with a more dominant culture. So that culture was called Numic or Numic. It's Great Basin Paiute Shoshone. Historically, there's linguistic information that would seem to tell us that there was a ethnogenesis. There was a creation of a new entity probably out of the Owens Valley, and they moved because of demographic problems. There was too many people living there. They moved out and migrated across the entire Great Basin to replace earlier cultures. Now, the reason I know that in the Kosos is they had a different style of rock art. They painted instead of pecking the rocks. And we believe now there's growing evidence to support this, that women and other individuals scratched the rocks with stones Mm. in a very thin way and embellished or eradicated the earlier rock art. 
Besides that, they milled on top of the older rock guard and erased it. They had milling slabs on the bedrock that was covered with rock guard, and they will mill it away. So obviously, we didn't venerate it as much as they did before, and that they didn't right. perceive the rock guard in the same way that their antecessors, the earlier people, did. Okay. Okay. Wow. All right. So let's talk about in the last half of this segment uh, in this show here, the efforts at China Lake. I, w- I want to get into, you know, we'll, we'll bring up, I'm sure China Lake and, and Little Petroglyph Canyon are going to come up in future episodes of this podcast. So I'm not sure. too worried about it, but it's, it's such an important site for the Western Hemisphere, as you said. But let's talk about some of the, uh, some of the preservation efforts, because one of the things that you made me think about when we you know, talking about the uh, that datable rock art with like writing and stuff like that on the other side of the planet. There is some stuff like that at China Lake and it's from the early scientists that were there. I remember seeing E equals MC squared and there's some other like modern-ish graffiti that, you know, it probably dates to the 50s and 40s when they when they were up there. And not only that, but this place has been locked off to the public for 70 years now. It has. And and for the foreseeable future, it will continue to be locked off to the public unless the Navy decides to give their land up. But I don't think that's going to happen. So I think it was since the 1940s, the early 1940s. It has been yeah. a military installation. And, right. and the military installation have been incredibly successful guardians of the natural environment and the cultural environment that they have preserved. So what I mean right. by that is they have protected it from vandalism, from theft, from development, and mm-hmm. uh, kept this million acres preserved, yeah, which is rather amazing. Uh, here we are in California, one of the more densely populated places in America, and we have a place just literally over the border, about it, what maybe two hours away from L.A. That literally no one lives there, and mm-hmm. it's a it's an enormous area very, very thinly populated and only occupied by the military. And uh, honestly, not not even that many military people go there. And so it has been very highly managed and highly regulated. You don't get in to that base (laughs) unless you are checked and audited. Uh, It's a three-week advance warning. You have to submit your credentials and they do a check on you. You can only be from America now. You can't be from a foreign country. And they check and see if you have any uh, examples of bad doings in your record, you know, felony convictions and other things like that. And that has come up before for some of our people, incorrectly, by the way, that they have been denied (laughs) denied access to the base. And one time I inadvertently had someone come into one of my tours without getting vetted and I heard from the commanding mm-hmm. officer in written letter that if that ever happens again, I would be, you know, called off from the base forever. I would never be allowed back on the base. So they are there. Yeah, they don't, uh, they don't mess around. And, and so when you get there at, at your entrance, they do a thorough check for drugs, for weapons, for any sort of illicit substances and circumstances that might come mm-hmm. in, including including liquor. 
and uh, they give you a whole briefing about what to do and what not to do. You're not allowed to take pictures before you get into, you can't take any pictures at all (laughs) until you get into the canyon, until you go there, and then you're allowed to take pictures. But you're not, you're yeah. not, you're not allowed to access your phone or, or photograph anything from that one hour trip from the base entrance all the way to that main canyon. Well, that trip alone, if you've never been there before, I mean, I, I think I went there twice in the time that I was there and uh, I couldn't do it again. <laughs> it's, it's like a, the roads to get out there without a map, you know, or, or unless you oh, yeah. really know where you're going. Got to know where you're yeah, going. Yeah, it's hard to find. So so back to preservation, if, if it's so remote and so well protected and so hard to get to, somebody might be thinking, well, why do we need to spend time uh, doing preservation on this thing? But why don't we talk about why we preserve stuff like that and, and how, how we do it for rock art? There's natural effects of the environment that cause a degradation of rock art. It's just, it's out there in the world exposed. So what's it exposed to? Well, first of all, it could be covered up by alluvium. We're talking about a Mm -hmm. natural drainage. So when, when they have downpours and they do happen from time to time, then uh, sand comes in and covers up the rock art. Right. Also, because of the freezing and thawing effect, these rocks crack and spall. And so because mm-hmm. they crack and spall, you lose rock art. As well, there are people, even people that are employees, that have done graffiti over the years, usually mm-hmm. uh, on the rock art, initials right. or what have you. It's very, very little by comparison to anything public, but I do have to say it does exist there uh, on on the rocks in some occasion, just like uh, Chris had mentioned from the 1940s mm-hmm. where they say E equals MC squared. <laughs> right. So, so the way to protect rock art is we don't want to lock it up and make it a prisoner. We just want to document it, photograph it, and draw it, and then also evaluate it for its condition and see if there's some way that we can conserve the rock art and help to keep it in some state that it would be visible, accessible, and available for public outreach. Yeah, I think it's important to note that uh, when you've got a a mile-long site like this with not only almost every visible face having something on it, but uh, many invisible faces as well. You know, the ones that are not visible from just walking down the canyon, they're behind the rocks They're you know, so there's little coves and stuff in the canyon. I mean, think of anything water-based. That's how this was formed. And, and that's what it looks like. So doing some sort of baseline condition assessment, because that's what, that's what you're alluding to right there, just to put a name to it. We don't have, well, we have an idea of what's there, but it's never been like a hundred percent recorded. No. And, you know, to, to go out there year after year when not very many people visit it. I mean, you might go out there more than, more than say anyone else, or, or probably the people at the Matarango museum who are constantly leading the tours when we're not in a crazy time like we are now. But even then seeing so much, unless it's a prominent face or a prominent location, like right at the entrance or somewhere you see all the time, you're not going to notice if something fell or something broke or something like that. So we need a baseline condition assessment. There are tour guides that have come into that Canyon over a hundred times. Yeah. And, led, and led tours for over a hundred times. And they tell me each time they go to that canyon, they see something new. One of the things, with, sure. rock, 
One of the things with rock art, especially the amount of rock art that's there in Little Petroglyph Canyon, the coastal range on the China Lake Naval Weapons Center, is mm-hmm. there's a tremendous amount of imagery that changes with the weather. So if it's overcast, you can see more. If it's sunny, you see less. Also, you see different things different times of day, depending on where the sun is in the sky and also the the weather is with clouds. You might see a whole different realm of different rock art that you have never seen before. You may see images and elements, even if you've been in that canyon dozens or even a hundred times that you didn't see before when you were there. And it's, it's rather amazing that that occurs. I would love to find a perch um, away from possible wash situations, but I would love to be there during a rainstorm to see what just comes out when the rock gets wet. You know what I mean? Can you uh, imagine? And the right light yeah. and wet. Yeah. And, and we were never there in the rain because, well, A, it's raining and, you know, you, it's usually dangerous to be there in the rain because you could get a flash um, flood. You could get a flash flood. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. And, and even even access, you know, we typically we typically head out of it wherever we're at when it's raining because the vehicles get stuck. So probably not too many people have seen it like that. And it's just it's really interesting to think about that. We do all this analysis and study, but you know, one of the fundamental weather conditions out there. And, and we really don't know what it looks like. And it'd be hard to photograph in the rain as well. Yeah. So I, I've, yeah. I've, I've gone in there after a heavy, heavy downpour. And I have to tell mm-hmm. you, the rocks soak up the rain. And <laughs> yeah. they do. And the rocks are dark. And you can only see maybe 10% of what you can see when they're dry. It is so amazing. Right. Yeah. Very, very right. different. But you can see more. If there's cloud cover and if you have time, mm-hmm. early, early on in the day, you see things that are on the on one side of the canyon. And then later on the day, you can see the other side of the canyon. And there are uh, natural effects, natural processes that are impacting the rock art. There's, there's a layering of lichen that's occurring on mm. one side of the canyon and it appears to be covering up some of the rock art. But there is enough rock art there for lichen to continue for centuries and not cover up a, a large portion of the rock art. <laughs> so, well, and, and you kind of have to put your put yourself in the shoes of uh, people of the past, too, because I can imagine I mean, that place has been high desert for a long time. And in the middle of the day, it is unbearably hot. It can uh, be in very, the summertime. very hot. Yes. Yeah. We're, we're I mean, talking, in wintertime, it's... Yes. We're talking yeah. about it. this canyon in the Coso Range, Little Petroglyph Canyon, and the Coso Range itself is near Ridgecrest. We're only two two valley systems away from Death Valley. Death Valley, yeah. of course, had the highest temperature ever recorded <laughs> on the ground, 135 degrees. Okay. Yeah. So in the Coso Range, yeah. you've got the Sierras right next to the Coso Range. It is one of the driest places on earth. It has less than three Mm -hmm. inches of rain on average each year or less. Right. So, so we're talking about an area of great dryness and one that's sort of not very attractive for human existence, but the natives saw it very differently. Um, Mm -hmm. When they were living there, one of the greatest attractions for the area was a was mountains and mountains and 
unbelievable amount of volcanic glass. And for most yeah. of prehistory, they were the black glass traders, the producers of and exporters of this uh, glass that all of stone tools were made of. And so uh, during most of prehistory, that's what was going on. Yeah. And on that note, uh, I think we'll call it for this episode because, again, we're going to bring up a lot of these concepts in relation to not only Little Petroglyph Canyon, but just rock art dating and other things. But I did want to note, and if I remember, hopefully I'll put this in the show notes, but um, Dr. Garfinkel did a fantastic uh, webinar on the Black Glass Traders. In fact, that's what it's called. It's on YouTube. It's on the Team Black YouTube channel. Um, actually, the Dig Tech YouTube channel. And I think it's also on the California Rock Art Foundation YouTube channel, but I'll find a link to at least one of those and I'll put it in the show notes and you can go over and take a look at that uh, fantastic webinar. So in the meantime, to learn more about rock art, we've already had a couple people email us after we debuted our episode zero. We're recording this before we've even released episodes one through five. <laughs> so, and this is episode five. So we're a little ahead of the game, but uh, as you're hearing these, send us a email. The contact information is in the show notes, arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Uh, check out the show notes uh, or wherever you saw this and, and send us a, send us a note on what you'd like to hear about and what you'd like to learn, learn about. So I think with that, thank we you. will call hey, it for this week. Thank you all in Archeo podcast land and a peak ascent. Have a great day. Absolutely. Thanks everyone. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rockart. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.